You're listening to WVEWLP 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's Community Radio, also streaming online at WVEW.org. This is the Vermont for Mystery Hour, a show exploring the Green Mountain State's strange past and present through stories that pique your curiosity and make your neck prickle. Beat the Sunday Scaries with me every weekend, broadcasting Sundays at 7 p.m., or catch the rebroadcast on Thursday nights. The opinions expressed on the Vermont Ver Mystery Hour are those of the host and guests, and don't necessarily reflect those of WVEW 107.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the Vermont Ver Mystery Hour, a podcast and radio show exploring the Green Mountain State's more peculiar side. I'm your host, Meg McIntyre. Today's guest has been called Vermont's own Bard of the Bazaar and even the Ghostmaster General, but you might know him as folklorist and author Joseph Citro. Citro has written three novels and about a dozen story collections, including Green Mountain Ghosts, Ghouls, and Unsolved Mysteries, Green Mountains, Dark Tales, and Damned Yankees, Cursed in New England. He was also a longtime commentator on Vermont Public Radio, where he covered all manner of local legends and lore. After a short break, we'll hear about Citro's writing process, his favorite stories, and his love for the strange and supernatural. Oh, and just a heads up, we did this interview remotely, and Joe's chair was just a little squeaky, so you might hear it in the background from time to time. Stay tuned for the interview after this break. Today's programming is underwritten in part by the Vermont Country Deli. Located at 436 Western Avenue in Brattleboro, they are open seven days a week from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. In addition to their menu of prepared foods, they offer specialty retail products from the Brattleboro area, including craft beers, wine, and specialty foods. They also offer full catering services. Find them online at vermontcountrydeli.com or call at 802-257-9254. Today I'm chatting with Vermont author and folklorist Joe Citro, who has written numerous books on Vermont history and culture. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. I want to start at the beginning. I want to talk a little about where you think your interest in the supernatural sort of started. Well, it's hard to tell, but I tend to get kind of Freudian about this and blame my parents. I, uh, my father was one who was pretty tuned in to local legends and lore. And so when I was spending time with him, riding around in the car, or just walking around town, he would point out places that had a bit of curious history attached to them. So I picked up on this stuff very young. They were, it was like planting seeds that that grew into plants. And how did this turn into your career? Did you always hope to become a writer? I, I think that was always in the back of my mind, oddly, even as a little kid. And I remember, I think it was my fifth grade teacher 
who asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, I want to be a writer. And she said, well, you can't spell, so you'll never be a writer. And now, you know, 20 books later, I still can't spell. <laughs> but I, I think it was always there. And, um, and, and I think that has a lot to do with my father's storytelling. I never had any children and don't plan to. So I had to find someone else to pass those stories along to, and that's what I've been doing. Tell me a little bit about your process when you're working on a book. What does sort of the research look like and what kind of sources do you look to for your information? The first, the first consideration is what kind of book I'm writing, whether I'm writing a novel or whether I'm writing a collection of nonfiction stories or whatever you want to call these things that I write. If I'm doing a collection of Vermont stories, I look everywhere. I always did a lot of reading before I started writing. So I had sort of a storehouse of stories that my father had told me and that I had picked up along the way through my own reading. So it was a process that, that started very early. I was collecting stories with no particular intent. I just liked them. But then when I started writing them, first first I wrote novels and second I wrote collections of stories. And when I started doing the commentary on Vermont Public Radio, people would then bring me stories. So it, it you know, it, it kept me out of the library somewhat, but there was always that process of validating the stories. Someone would tell me there was a UFO spotted over uh, Juniper Island on Lake Champlain or something like that. And I would try to try to validate that through another source. I have to keep my eyes and ears open for new stories because I have a real sense of mission about this. Before I started my own stories, no one was doing this. No one had ever done a collection of Vermont weird tales. No single author had ever taken upon himself or herself to collect this very valid and um, vibrant part of Vermont history, the weird stories. So I was the only one doing it. I was the only one who had ever done it. And I felt I somehow developed a real sense of mission that I have to go on and continue to do it. And then eventually pass the torch to someone else because the stories keep coming and there are many that are just uncollected and unwritten, still in the oral tradition. And you mentioned that you started out doing fiction. How much does your fiction sort of draw on on reality or, or your other research? Well, to- totally, really. My, my first notion was that I, I had a head full of all these cool stories that my father had told me or that I had discovered on my own. And my first reaction to that was that I could package those as, as fiction narratives for modern readers. Most of these stories have much more tenacity than any bestseller. You know, the story of the critter in Lake Champlain has been around for centuries. You know, find me a book uh, other than possibly the Bible that has been around for centuries and continues to be a bestseller. So I figured these, these, these stories had some sort of traction, could gain some sort of traction. So I started developing them into fictional narratives. There were a couple of reasons why I made the shift from fiction into just collections. But one of those is that the stories just kept coming at me. I might involve two or three stories in a novel. Meanwhile, dozens more stories are coming my way. 
So novels weren't going to do it. I really wanted to collect the stories themselves. So in 1994, I decided to put the fiction aside and just continue my quest to collect all Vermont stories. It's a fool's errand in a sense, because I know I'm not going to be able to collect them all. So I'm going to need help. And so I appreciate what you're doing. You're helping keep these stories alive. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was wondering, and I know, as you said, there are so many stories and it's hard to pick, but do you have a favorite Vermont legend or story? Maybe not just one, but I love a couple of them. I, I love the story of the cryogenic senior citizens up around Montpelier. I just fancy that story. I've always loved that story. I heard it first when I was a little kid, presented as if it was true. And, you know, I've since done the research that refutes any sort of truth behind the story, but it's still a lovely story. And there are people out there who believe it's true. That is a great favorite. The other story that just has undying fascination for me is the story of the Eddie brothers in Chittenden. Good sense suggests that they were conmen and frauds. But I only know one person um, who's probably done more research than I about the Eddie brothers. That's a guy named Jason Smiley. There's plenty of evidence that they're fakers, but there's also a lot of evidence that they were on the level, and I can't decide which side of the fence I'm on with them. Some time back, when there was still a Vermont Life magazine, editor Tom Slayton had me do a story about the Eddie brothers. The assignment was that I was supposed to debunk them. I was able to impeach them a bit. I was able to catch them in a few, a few shenanigans, but overall, I wasn't able to debunk them, and I had to come down once again where I'm always sitting right on the fence. I wanted to talk a little bit more about this idea of truth and what we believe, because obviously there are criticisms of this kind of storytelling that it's perpetuating falsehoods. It sounds like for you, there's there's elements of both in every story, but how important do you think it is to to believe in the story that you're writing? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that for anyone but myself. I believe it all when I'm writing. Be belief in the narrative is really essential, whether whether you're writing fiction or whether you're writing about the Eddie brothers. I, I have to believe it, otherwise I won't be able to tell an honest, incredible story. When I step back from from what I'm writing, I realize that the novel I just finished is fiction. There may be elements of truth, but there's no overall truth. And I step back from the nonfiction work with more of a sense of wonder. Some of the stuff is clearly fabricated by good old Yankee storytellers, and others kind of eludes easy dismissal. So although I don't embrace these stories with actual belief, I remain open to the possibility that maybe they're true. You have to leave the door open for the possibility of truth. And my show is obviously based around the Brattleboro area, although we do episodes on all over Vermont. But are there any stories from the Brattleboro area that are your favorite or that people might not know about? I think there's a lot left to discover there. I haven't put in as much time in Brattleboro as I'd like to. But I do have a favorite story there. 
Do you know the story of Thomas Power James? He lived there during the heyday of American spiritualism, and he presented himself as a as a doubter, but nonetheless attended a seance, during which he was contacted by a spirit who asked Thomas Power James if they could collaborate on a project. What project? Who was the spirit? Well, the spirit was Charles Dickens, who had passed away in England before he had an opportunity to finish writing the uh, mystery of Edwin Drood. So his idea was that he would involve Thomas Power James, picked randomly in Brattleboro, Vermont, to, um, to finish the book. And he did. <laughs> he did. Allegedly with the help of Charles Dickens, whose who spirit just happened to be wafting through Brattleboro during this seance. And um, it exists. The book exists. You can see it right in your town library. There remains controversy whether he was a con person or whether he was, um, you know, really collaborating with Charles Dickens' spirit. Conan Doyle, who was, you know, the writer who invented Sherlock Holmes, came down saying that it sounded like Dickens, but Dickens gone flat. That's a great favorite of mine. I love that. You touched on it a little bit already, but for you, what is sort of the importance of, of keeping these stories in the Vermont imagination and sort of continuing to pass these down, especially through, as you mentioned, sort of that oral storytelling tradition? I, I think at the risk of sounding a little bit sappy, I think it, I think these stories nurture the soul somewhat because they they generate a sense of wonder. And as long as one's wonder and sense of curiosity are engaged, it gives some direction and purpose to what we're doing. I love it when I go into schools and talk to little kids and I'll tell them some some story and they will start researching it on their own, find out more about it, possibly debunk it, possibly uh, write it down themselves someday. So I, I, I think there's some importance in myth. I think it stabilizes relationships among people. People tend to embrace similar myths, and it, it creates a bond. I hesitate to mention religion, but I think that is somewhat in the same realm that we're talking about here, bonding based on supernatural stories. That may be true, it may not. And so I want to hear also, is there anything specific that you're working on now or any other particular stories that you haven't had a chance to research yet that you're hoping to in the future? This pandemic put a big hole in my process because I have a, probably a half dozen stories for which I have notes, but I'm going to have to go out into the real world and talk to people and look at scenes and situations. And I haven't been able to do that for the last year. Um, I've got one. There's a house around here that has a window in it. And people inside the house can, on occasion, look out this certain window and see an Indian riding by on a horse. There have been a number of witnesses to this. As the story was presented to me, you might look through this one window and see the Indian but if you run over to the next window and look through that, the Indian won't be visible. That's interesting. And 
and I want to find out if that's true. I found the house. I've talked to the occupants. But what a great story. Think about that. There's, there's a house full of windows, and through just one of them, you can look out and see, presumably, the past. I love it. Probably not true, but I love it. That's one of several that I want to I want to track down now that the pandemic is backing off. You've been writing on these subjects for for quite a while in Vermont now. You're sort of known as the the authority on on all things weird in Vermont and and in much of New England. What are the biggest things that you've learned from that process over the years? Again, I come back to this sense of mission. I what I've learned is that it hasn't been done and somebody's got to do it. And there's been a lot of little offshoots, people who are writing blogs or podcasts or whatever, who are picking up on these stories. It's not just me. A lot of people are doing them now. But I like to think that I had something to do with that, that I, I, I sort of somehow helped to propel that. And maybe, maybe, maybe that is my life's work, you know, maybe that's the contribution I'll make to this world and this state for what it's worth. Thank you again so much, Joe. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Joe's latest book, The Vermont Ghost Experience, which features illustrations by cartoonist Robert Waldo Brunel, is out now. We'll be right back. Do you live in the Brattleboro area and need free food? Bridget's Kitchen at St. Michael's Church on Walnut Street serves grab-and-go lunches and fruits and nuts on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays from 11.30 a.m. to 12.20 p.m. Their phone number is 802-254-6800 or 802-558-6072. Loaves and Fishes at the Center Congregational Church at 193 Main Street serves grab-and-go lunches on Tuesdays and Fridays at noon. Their phone number is 802-254-4730. FoodWorks, the food shelf program of the Groundworks Collaborative, is a resource for you, too. They are located at 141 Canal Street. Their website is groundworksvt.org and their phone number is 802-490-2412. FoodWorks staff asks people in need of food to call or visit the website to coordinate delivery. FoodWorks also has an urgent need for volunteers, and they have set up protocols to keep staff, volunteers, and clients as safe as possible. Please email them at volunteer at groundworksvt.org if you are able to help. Stay safe, practice physical distancing, and take care of each other. This public service announcement has been brought to you by Brattleboro Community Radio, WVEW. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's now time once again for Murder, She Rates, my weekly review segment for lovers of mystery and the macabre. This week, I want to tell you about the novel The Trespasser by Tana French. 
The Trespasser is one of French's Dublin Murder Squad books and stars Detective Antoinette Conway, a fiery protagonist who's navigating life as the Murder Squad's only female detective. When she and her partner, Stephen Morin, are handed a domestic murder case at the end of an overnight shift, it initially seems pretty cut and dry. But something doesn't feel quite right about the suspect that's been conveniently dropped in their laps, and Conway and Morin begin to wonder who they can really trust. What seemed like a routine investigation becomes something much bigger. I enjoyed this one a lot. The other books I've read by Tana French have mostly had male protagonists, so it was nice to read one from a woman's perspective. Antoinette Conway's character is well-developed and dynamic. She has her obvious quirks and flaws, but she certainly does learn something by the end of the book. She spends most of the story believing she has a target on her back as other members of the murder squad try to make her life a living hell, but ultimately she realizes that there are people who have her back, too. The crime the story centers around isn't necessarily an intricate puzzle, but French does a good job of injecting enough doubt and confusion into the plot to keep you from guessing the perpetrator too early on. The book is really more about the detectives and the investigation process than the crime itself. A lot of the action takes place in the interrogation room, and I liked the way French skillfully illustrates the subtle non-verbal communication between Conway and her partner as they feed off of each other and shift strategies without saying a word. I will say that the ending left me feeling a little unsatisfied, but that seems intentional because Conway and Morin don't quite get what they want by the end of the book either. French seems to be very good at finding that sweet spot of realism. Nothing is ever tied up neatly with a bow, because that's not how it works in real life, either. Overall, I'd give The Trespasser 4.2 out of 5 skulls. If you've read it too, let me know what you thought at vermystery at gmail.com, or send me your suggestions for future reviews, especially if you have a favorite Vermont author or artist to recommend. That's just about it for today's show, folks. A huge thank you to Joseph Citro for joining me on today's episode. The Vermont Vermystery Hour is written, hosted, and produced by me, Meg McIntyre, with research help from Matt Bruno. Our cover art is by Ginny Stoos, and our theme music is by me and my pal Nikki Seafried. If you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow the Vermont Vermystery Hour on Twitter at VermysteryPod. That's V-E-R mystery, pod. Let's beat those Sunday scaries, friends.